built up to this question lovingly in my questions, but I thought we'd start with the place okay. and this idea of uh, money and class dictating the way that your life goes. And for Lydia, it's almost as though she's fated not to achieve. And uh, it, it seems to be a portrait of small town America that's perhaps disappearing because there's the, the very rich and the very poor are coming up harder against. Yeah. Well, I think. I think the very rich come again, come up against you know the sort of the working classes in cities, you know, or in towns that are near cities where there's money. I'm sure there's because the you know the United States is so big. Probably 90% of like rural America is is doesn't sort of bump up against it in the way that if you if you're in Connecticut or New York or Massachusetts or outside San Francisco or um, towns like that. But you know, in the case of the town that I grew up in. It, um, it was two hours north of New York, and when we, when my family moved there in 1977 or 78, um, I think there were between 25 and 30 working farms. There were 25. There were between 25 and 30 working farms, um, and and now there are none, and there were there have been none for a long time, and but. You know, the, the explanation for that is that that land is gorgeous and the towns are beautiful. And so one by one, these families who'd you know, owned these farms for generations had cashed out and sold them to you know, wealthy New Yorkers who you know, maybe spend the month of August there and a handful of weekends during the year. And, and so for the people who grow up in those towns, um, and, and especially for the families who've been in those towns for many generations... You know, they they watch little by slowly all the best houses and the best pieces of property, um, you know, become occupied by people who just buy their way in. And so there is a lot of resentment. There was certainly a lot of that in the town that I grew up in, and it developed because you know from the late '70s to the early '90s, which is when my family when we left, my my parents got divorced. They sold the house that I grew up in. I moved to New York, but but in that time. All the farms were sold, and and so many of the people who had lived there all their lives had been priced out of the town and, and had to move across the state line into one of the the towns that were less expensive. And but the a lot of the tension comes from the fact that those very people who resent those 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 outsiders coming in work for them. So you know, building their houses, mowing their lawns, cooking their meals, you know, um, you know paving their, their their driveways, digging them out in the snowstorm. And so you have to interact with these people who support you, but who also are the object of an enormous amount of your resentment. So I, I, I saw so much of that growing up. Um, what did your parents move to, to, to... What was the name of the... It's a town called Sharon. It's, uh, and, uh, you know, it's like 1,500 people, and all the towns around it are similar in the sense that they're small... Um, population-wise, but large land-wise, and with very strict zoning. So there can't be any sort of new developments or businesses that go into those towns beyond what the zoning um, restrictions allow. And a lot of those restrictions, like in Sharon, you know, date back to the late 1700s. It's like, it's like the footprint of the town in terms of there can be, you know, a general store here and, you know, something there. It hasn't really changed that much. So going back there is like, going back to a museum of the town of my childhood because 
nothing changes. The house colors, the mailboxes, like you can't change those things without like a lawyer and then a relative okay. on the zoning board. So, and there's an economic reason a, a place we were just talking about you having a house in, in Rhinebeck, which I know um, you compare Rhinebeck to Hyde Park down the road where they've let in um, McDonald's and I don't, and I'm not trying to besmirch Hyde Park, um, the sort of home of the Roosevelt's and, and various other things. But there's a reason that people are going to Rhinebeck. They're chasing... I think Richard Russo writes brilliantly about this. Um, but this idea that people are chasing a kind of idea of a sort of nostalgia that maybe they haven't even experienced, but a yeah. small... T- uh, there's, a, there's a thirst for small-town America. Yeah. I mean, I feel it, and I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's, I think that's true. I mean I, I, I mean, I can speak from my own experience, having like moved to New York in my early 20s. I've, I've been there for, you know, 25 <coughs> years now, and... And it's, you know, there is a, there is something about, if you, you know, being in a town where people know your name and um, you, you're not anonymous and you're, um, you're sort of accountable in a, in a way that, you know, makes you feel safe, something happens to you or a relative. But it, there's a dark side of that too, which is that, you know, small towns... Um, especially if you grow up in them. See, it's one thing to come... It's, if you come to a small town after you've, you know, you, you come fresh, like, in your 40s and 50s, after you sort of made money and things like that, you're not really caught up in all of the sort of the, the politics and the um, and uh, the history and the gossip. A lot of it you just... A lot of it you, you might not ever hear. Like, But if you grow up in a place like that, people know you and they never forget. And it's like a family, you know? It's like sort of... Pe- you know, closed communities, you know, people who are sort of in proximity to each other, bound by, you know, uh, real estate and geography or by blood, like, oftentimes are the toughest on each other. We're, like, I, I know in my family, we were incredibly tough on each other. Right. And, um, and, and then the town that I grew up in, people were often really tough on each other. And there was a, and, um, and so uh, there's a way in which you want anonymity at a certain point if you've grown up in a town like that. You want to disappear because you just you feel like you can't escape something you did when you were eight years old. I mean, I was hit by a car when I was 13 years old in, um, in Sharon, and it was in front of the coffee shop, and so lots of people witnessed it. My mother found out because somebody called her and said, did you hear that Billy was playing chicken with the car, with, with Kenny, who was my best friend at the time? <laughs> That's how she found out that I was in the hospital. Is somebody called wow. her and said, "Did you hear he was playing chicken with the car?" So there was already an accusation. Like I had been, like you know, judged and sentenced already okay. by the town <laughs> before and, you hit the ground. Yeah, and yeah. like a lot has happened in my life since then. But there are people in that town. If you mention my name, they're like, "Oh, Billy!" Like he got hit by that car playing chicken with Kenny Schwader in front of the <laughs> diner. And it's like, I mean, but that is the, that's sort of the beauty and also the terror of a place like that. And. Um, so. Did, did that inform a character like Silas, who who opens the novel and I think feels those pressures that he's trying to escape uh, by sort of repeatedly smoking uh, pot, and but feels uh, within the within that house he can hear his his parents. There, there's no sense of of physical escape. So is the is the dream to kind of get out? And Silas, felt. I don't think for, I don't think initially for Silas the okay. dream was to get out. I think. I think Silas smoked pot because there was nothing else to do initially. <laughs> but I think over the but the events that happened in the book kind of expose him to you know kind of ha- the, 
how the town happens in this way. His mother is a big gossip, and his mother grew up with Lydia, who's one of the main characters in the book, and and so something happens where he's suddenly able to see two sides of something so and and to question his mother's version of events so he he hears his mother you know judge this woman very harshly and uh and and because of the events in the book he's come to be sympathetic with this woman and and to be kind of fascinated by her and so i think i think what happens is you know he begins to see that uh that not that, that there's sort of a there's a, a, a truth that um, is is uh, is questioned is or is questionable and um, and and I think that gives him a restlessness I think that gives him sort of a different like feeling I don't think that Silas was terribly conscious of anything before like every before the events that take place <laughs> in the book happen I think he sort of like bumped along and smoked pot and you know, did a summer job and had fun with his friends, mm. and then this tragedy happened that he is involved with, involved with, and just causes him to sort of look at everything differently. It's your first novel, but it's your second book. I'm always curious to third book. Third yeah. book. Yeah, I wrote, two, I wrote two memoirs, and this is the oh, first okay. novel. Yeah. Is there a transition did you, did you find from moving from non-fiction, and I think your non-fiction is fairly playful, uh, there's a, obviously a basis in your life, but skirts around perhaps facts, it's more impressionistic, and, mm-hmm. but there is something to work with, there's you and your experiences. Yeah. Was it different writing, uh, the, writing fiction and, and starting with a, kind of a blank page, a completely open creative yeah. space? It's different, and I mean, it's much different. It was so, even though there's nothing, it's not a particularly fun uh, story. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the house blows up, everybody dies, and people, you know, sort of uh, navigate their grief. But I, the experience was joyful. If that sounds a little sick, but um, but just sitting down to, you know, writing each time was exhilarating in a different way than writing the memoirs in the sense that like I had no idea really what was going to happen especially in the first years of, of writing I just I uh, you know at first I started writing about the place when I was writing Portrait of an Addict years ago you know I had spent you know most of my you know college years and 20s actively avoiding the place I grew up okay. and actively not remembering and, uh, and then in my 30s uh, um, once I got sober, and and then when I started writing the book, I really looked back. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time going back into my past and sort of tracing how I got to where uh, I was. And, Is that um, because you you located the vulnerabilities that perhaps caused you to to take drugs and in your childhood? I mean, you've mentioned divorce and car accidents. And, yeah. Um, is that you, you sort of I think the the, the, the the portrait of an addict seems to locate your your early vulnerabilities yeah. there it, yeah I mean I, I that book you know really sort of spent time kind of identifying the genesis and and, and evolution of, of my alcoholism and addiction and which you know dates back to my consciousness mm-hmm. like and and so and I you know that the process of writing portrait was really uh, it was, it was, it just felt necessary. But it was so incredibly helpful in terms of like uh, 
finding the patterns and sort of like looking at the shape of it and um, and really reckoning, you know, sort of with the impact that my drinking and, and drugging had on other people. Also, you know, what my father's drinking and his, um, you know, sort of resulting behavior, sort of what that looked like, how it was similar to mine, and um, which I never thought could be possible. <laughs> and um, and so so that was that was meaningful, but. When I and and so I suddenly was sort of back in the kitchen and in the living room and in my high school and thinking about these places, and you know, and then I really I hadn't even really physically been back to the town in many years, and uh, I I went when I was writing poetry I went back and spent time just kind of walking the streets and and um, going to the road that I grew up on, and and at that time I I just I became. Sort of interested. I sort of looked at it with different eyes. It's also it's an incredibly beautiful place, okay. and uh, and um, and in the course of writing that memoir, this novel kind of the germ of it, like sort of uh, uh, came to life. And um, what was that germ? I mean, it, without wishing to sort of, or perhaps actually, I am wishing to sort of psychoanalyze you at this moment. But the idea of an event, a tragedy that wipes out everyone close to you. I mean, that perhaps has parallels with something like addiction, which is you're blocking out perhaps family, painful things in your past. And I'm just, I'm slightly sort of... Uh... Yeah, and also addiction and alcoholism, you know, they they, they take away things. Like, you, yeah. you lose jobs, you lose families, you lose, you can lose your life. Or you can lose someone, you can lose someone very close to you from addiction and alcoholism. And so that sort of... Um, that that shocking loss that you can't legislate, that you that that you can't control, um, is uh, you know I think it's something that you know now I'm, I'm just about to be 45, and um, you just as you get older you just start witnessing how people leave you in all sorts of ways through old age, through addiction, alcoholism, through suicide, through all sorts of things, and um, and. Um, and I had actually, until my dad died last month, like I had, until then I didn't, um, I had really nobody close to me had ever died. So, th- so when I was writing this book over the course of those seven years, I actually haven't known grief in an sort of upfront, close way. So th- in fact, it was sort of the hardest thing to do was to sort of imagine into it. So I just imagined my worst fears and sort of occupied them and transcribed a lot of what I felt as, and put it on a lot of the characters. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting having finished the book and then experienced my father's um, dying uh, to 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 really actually occupy it is kind of somewhat like I imagined and nothing at all too. So, um, but um, but also his was a different kind of death. It wasn't it wasn't it was shocking when it happened, but it was it was kind of a year in the coming. He had fallen down a flight of stairs. Uh, Last April, and um, and um, and the day before was flying his little airplane and stuff like that, and so and never, and after that he never saw the outside of a hospital. So he, yeah. So so from that point, it, there was you know I spent a lot of time by his bedside in Maine. Like I was flying back and forth for the last thirteen months, and um, and uh, so it, so he was sort of scheduled to die in this kind of way like it was a clear descent there was only one direction it was going in and um, and yet you know I was holding him when he died and it was you know it's it was still 
it was, it was so shocking. It's still shocking to me. I can't. I, it's like it's a shock to think that he's not here. Um, so especially because my father was such a, you know, he, uh, in my growing up years was so ferocious and scary and all powerful. And you know, when, when he went, he was you know a brittle, you know, just like a frail bird, you know, and and so and just defenseless. Nothing can prepare. I mean, my, my, my dad came home to, to not our childhood home, but where they were living, and, and was there for a week. And we were we were there, and, and that's the part of it I can't quite. I'm still locked off. I haven't quite got around to thinking about it because there's something about the immediacy, the physicality being there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he came back to the house that you were growing up in to die, or um, yeah, well, at home to so where he and my mum. Oh. living so he was in hospital we knew he was ill but it was, oh, he suddenly he went up. oh right so he came home for the final week and we all sort of gathered around we kept on th- we tried to figure out how to do that but it th- but we, it was so unpredictable like what was happening so and my sister has it was all in Maine where he didn't live there but he happened to be at my sister's house when he fell and um, and so and she has 16 year old boys and there was this kind of fear of him you know, being there, he was very comfortable and he was in an amazing place, like this hospice, uh, it was wonderful. But we, we all wanted him to sort of be in, in the house and he had a lot of good associations with that, my sister's house. Um, but we, he would be so great for a while and then mm-hmm. he would plummet and so we just, we, and then the, the week that he died, he plummeted so fast, it was sort of, be crazy to sort of like, uh, you know, yeah. kind of uproot him and stick him in the house, but... Um, I think if you're in a good place, I think my, the hospital my dad was in was probably a place he wanted to get out of. Oh, okay. I just for this the same thing, I just interviewed David Gates, and the last story in his new collection is about someone going wanting to go to a house to die, and he's written an essay. He said oh. about his father his father dying at home. I'm not sure to track down, but he was. There's a thing I always say, which like I've said a thousand times, but it, but it is the best way to say it is that it's like like something like this. Like that becomes your whole life. It's like it's like when you see like a water tower, like on a city skyline. It's like you you never saw them before, and then you see one, and then you see all of them. Yeah. And with this, it's you know I, I feel like um, my one of my best friends, his father died um, w- weeks before mine did, and um, and still the whole thing seems so removed. I, I it, it was as if you know as if like this couldn't happen. I, it it was really like. Um, it's just still, I don't quite, it's just a very hard thing to kind of accept. 